If you don't have sermon notes, the ushers can move around the auditorium. They'll gladly give you some. But we're in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. I got the right book this morning, this evening. 1 Samuel. Head to chapter 6 for with me, okay? Chapter 5 and 6. 1 Samuel as we continue. I was thinking that by the time all the teachers would leave, we'd have nobody here. So I'm glad you stayed. Thanks. Appreciate that. I thought I was going to be speaking to me and me. Um, so you're here. That's great. Let's do a study. We... Um, we are, this evening I'm talking about the ark being treated like a hot potato. We play lots of games. I, you, you enjoy games. You, you play them, you do them. I'm enjoying this phase now with grandkids being able to come and play different games in the house, and the games are the hide-and-seek. It's cool. I mean, last week I got Preston hidden in the dryer. That was great. Don't tell his parents. They're out of the room, so don't tell them. But um, you know, we had an uh, opportunity yesterday. My son came up from Jersey, and we had the kids there, and we were playing games, and games are fun. You have your family games that you enjoy and do those types of things. And so for some of you, it's table games. For some of you, that's a challenge to your relationship. Others, it's a joy that helps out. But the hot potato game we're all familiar with. When we say that they're treating the ark like a hot potato, it's basically nobody wants to hang on to it. They want to get rid of it. That's what happens in 1 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. It is an amazing text. In understanding it, we really have to remember the context because it seems when you first read this chapter and it's stuck in there, it seems like, wait a minute, why is he giving all this story other than just filling our fanciful dreams and ideas of what's going on? Remember, if you weren't with us this morning, just recall that this is in the early years of Samuel's ministry. Samuel has already proven himself to start being able to give visions, be being able to give uh, revelation from God. And we read about in chapter 3, the last couple of verses going into chapter 4, that God is starting to make him to be known as a prophet. But they aren't yet consulting him on a regular basis. He's not going to exercise his true leadership until we come to chapter 7. What happens is in this text that in chapters 3 and 4, the Philistines have developed to become a power. Samson has resisted them, wiped out their leadership, if you remember. We read that in the book of Judges. And it's taken them a few years to regain supremacy, and they've regained supremacy over the Jews. And in chapter 4, the Jews want to throw off those shackles, so they're going to take him into battle. They're proud. They're thinking they got this covered. They're very confident in themselves. James Dobson writes about one of his classmates when he was in medical school, that this fellow, he says, was an individual who was pretty confident. We're just, you know, when he was in a crowd, he wanted to stand out amongst everybody else that he's the man, he's the best student, he's this, he's that, and was a rather, you know, strong-willed, strong, strong personality. He says, this one man went down to the cafeteria in front of all the other students one day, and he had an embarrassing moment that put him in his place, so to speak. He got his tray of food, and as he got his tray of food, he was walking away, and he was immaculate in his suit, and he would always dress so much, you know, the, the part. And he wanted to reach down and to get some of his milkshake and start drinking it while he's carrying the tray. Well, as he's carrying the tray and he got jostled a little bit, the straw missed his mouth and went up his nose. And so he's got this embarrassment that, you know, you can picture the scene. He's got the straw stuck here, and he thought, well, I'll just, you know, I, I, I want to keep my composure, and I don't want people to make fun of me. So he pulled his head up real quick, and when he did, the straw came with it. So now the straw is dripping out uh, stuff over his suit. It's stuck there, and it's just his, his confidence, his, his proud moment, it just vanished. It just vanished. He had one of those embarrassing moments. Here's what happens to the Jews. They have this confident, proud moment, and the straw that was stuck in their nose was they got defeated in battle. 
They go to war in chapter 4 and they get whooped really good. 4,000 men die. They decide to go back for a second shot. Surely we're going to win and they take the Ark of the Covenant with them. They march into battle and this time they lose 30,000 men. So in two brief battles with the Philistines, they've gotten beat pretty badly, lost 34,000. A battle that we read this morning, if you look in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the Philistines didn't expect to win. They expected that when the Jews showed up with the Ark of the Covenant, that surely they were going to be destroyed. And they recall, if you remember this morning, we mentioned, they start thinking this is the Ark of the Covenant that was associated with the plagues of Egypt. Uh, We know that the Ark came later. But the Philistines are putting in saying, this is the seating place of their God. He defeated the the Egyptians. Surely we're going to be, be beaten in battle. And they're not. They win the battle. Hophni and Phinehas, the two leading priests next to their dad Eli, they are killed in the battle. And as well, the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. They take it. And so there's a, a, there's a spirit within the Jews that is just devastating at this moment that all of a sudden everything is going bad. And when the news comes back from the battlefield, which we read this morning in chapter 4, Eli, who is the high priest at the time, he hears the news, hears about his boys being killed in battle, hears that the Ark is taken, and he falls back. And when he falls back, apparent heart attack, break his neck, he dies on the spot. Now the Jews have just lost everything. And so we realize, we realize that in further research, it doesn't say in chapter 4, and this is going to be important with what happens in chapter 6 and chapter 7, that they don't take the ark back to Shiloh. Shiloh was the place where they had the ark, that it was tabernacled at that moment. The records from archaeology and the historical records indicate that at this time period, the Philistines kept on marauding. They've beaten them in battle and they go to Shiloh and they wipe out Shiloh. So records indicate there is no more Shiloh. There is no national capital anymore. There is no tabernacle setting anymore for the Jews. And so they have just suffered some devastating blows in, in putting it all together. Now, you have to pause and say, what would be their mindset? And I believe this is critical to the interpretation and the reason why God records as much as he does in chapters 5 and 6. And so to set the scene, keep with me for a moment. The Jews at this moment would have been absolutely devastated. Think through, if you're sitting there and you're in the Jewish encampment, you've been beaten in battle. Beaten by an enemy that you, you had full confidence you were going to beat them. All, most of your leaders are dead. Your longtime leader for 40 years, Eli, he's dead. It's like decades of the same president, he's gone. That would be unsettling. As well, many of your community leaders are gone. Because 34,000 who have gone into battle, that would have included a lot of the, the strong individuals, the leadership in the community. There's, there, there's a real vacuum now in leadership. There's a real vacuum in who's going who's gonna to guide us, who's going to direct us, who's going to keep us going. The nation's capital, as I mentioned, Shiloh, is devastated. It is gone. It is non-existent along with the tabernacle. The most iconic symbol of your God's presence, and remember, this is what they thought, that God was here and, and with this ark, and if they take it into battle, they'll win because God is with them wherever that ark is. It is gone. The, the most precious piece of religious um, relic that could be. In fact, we didn't read this portion, but let me, let me finish reading chapter 4, where we pick up with Eli having passed away. 
And it says in verse 18 that he has died now. He had judged for the Israel for 40 years. His daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, now this is the Phineas who's just been killed with battle, she was with child, ready to be delivered, ready to bear the child. When she heard the tidings of the Ark of the Covenant was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband were all dead, she bowed herself and travailed, and for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, she dies in childbearing because the stress is so bad. The woman that stood by her said, Fear not, you have borne a son. And she answered not, neither did she regard it. She didn't care. She's so emotionally devastated. She names the child, what's your Bible read? Ichabod, saying, or literally the idea is, the glory is departed from Israel. This is her mindset. A brand new mom names her child based upon this idea that the ark of, the, of God was taken because of her father-in-law and her husband's death. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. At this moment, this is the mindset of these people. All hope is gone. We are, woe unto us. There is no possibility of anything getting any better. What happened here? Okay, there we go. Sorry. So there's no doubt that at this moment, they are tempted to give up on God. Now, now remind you, remember what we said this morning. They think it's God's fault that they lost the first battle. So now they would be thinking, we might as well give up on God totally because God has given up on us. And so this, they're, they're in a spiritual battle at this moment. Now, understand something that could happen at this time. I alluded to it this morning, but let me rehearse it again. The Philistines are not native to this territory. The Philistines have invaded from the Greece area of Greece and come this way, and they are invading territory that belongs to the Canaanites. So the Philistines are enemies to the, to the Canaanites who have been there for centuries, and they're enemies of the, of the Jews that have been there now for centuries. And so they're invading everybody's land. If the Jews, at this moment are thinking God has deserted them, and their only hope, their only help at this moment to defeat the Philistines, who would they turn to? The Canaanites. They would say, let's join forces against a common enemy. Wait a minute. They did this once before. They did this early in the book of Judges, is they started making alliances with the Canaanites to defeat other stronger powers. And so God doesn't want them to yoke up with the Canaanites. He wants to get the Canaanites out of their life. But the temptation would be, wait a minute, God's given up on us. God isn't here anymore. You know, we, we failed. The only hope we have is we, we need to become more associated, more allied with those who are in this region that God has told us in the past we shouldn't. So this is a really pivotal moment in Jewish history. Do they retain their personal identity or do they all of a sudden make alliances and become more incorporated with the Canaanites to drive off the Philistines who everybody hates? And they have to. They have to come to a moment of what about God? What about God in our lives? We think he has left us. This is where we start reading now in chapters 5 and 6. In chapters 5 and 6, we get a real long, involved account of not what happens in Israel, but what happens outside of Israel. We, God all of a sudden tells us a whole lot about the Ark of the Covenant and gives us this lengthy story about the Ark of the Covenant that really isn't 
isn't that important, so to speak, to what's happening in Israel other than their faith. So that makes it very important. In fact, I want you to catch something. In the, Ark, the story of the Ark of the Covenant, there is this long dry diatribe. Look at chapter 6, starting with verse 1, and you go all the way down to about verse 9 or 10, that it gives us this long, this long description of a conversation that is taking place in the court of the Philistines. What difference does it make? Why, why is that important to the Jews? They need to hear. God knows they need to hear what is going on with all the details with this Ark of the Covenant because this is going to be critical information. This is going to be important information that they hear a very extended, detailed conversation between the five kings of the Philistines and their advisors. And it's going to give the Jews a, uh, an idea of what are the enemies thinking. Are these enemies vulnerable? Are they, are they being impacted? Are, what's going on? And so the information given in chapters 5 and 6, after defeat, after discouragement, is going to be very pivotal into the history and the minds of the Jews, so that in chapter 7, when Samuel says, let's do it a third time, let's go to battle, they are totally confident. Chapter 4 ends up, they are defeated, Ichabod. Chapter 7 starts with, let's go to war. What happened in chapters 5 and 6 to rebuild their faith? What, is, what did God teach them through this Ark of the Covenant and its story that helped them to keep their faith in God and then go again into battle? It is an important two chapters. And the chapters give us a lot of detail, a lot of information that isn't dealing with the Jews, but dealing with the Ark of the Covenant and what happens outside of Israel. They needed to learn some lessons. Here, let's, let's find out. Let's make sure you and I, before we look at lessons, let's make sure we understand what happened historically. What is going to take place? The Ark of the Covenant is captured in battle. In chapter 5, the first seven verses say that they took the Ark and they went to one of their main cities. The Philistines have five main capital cities. Ashdod is one of them. And so they take the ark and they head over to Ashdod. Let's read what happens. The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it unto Ebenezer, unto, from Ebenezer. That's the battle site of that second battle where the Jews were beaten. And they go to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. The house is literally the temple. Dagon is their god that they're going to worship. He is pictured as a fish, part man, part fish, and they are going to take him and put the Ark of the Covenant in the worship center. And when they of Ashdod arose early in the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the Ark of God. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they rose up early the following morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his palms and his hands were cut off from upon the threshold. Only the stump, the torso of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house would ever walk on the threshold of, of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod. He destroyed them. He smote them with emeralds. Some say it's hemorrhoids. Some say it's a variety of different types of plagues. Even Ashdod and the coast thereof. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of God of Israel shall not abide with us. 
For his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. Okay, let me add a little bit of tidbit of information that might help you in this setting. One of the five great cities, one of the capitals, 19 miles they take this thing, south of Ebenezer where they go to the battle place. It is a major religious center for Dagon the God. Understand Dagon is the God of war. So they take the Ark of the Covenant and they're going to put it underneath the statue of Dagon representing that Dagon is more powerful than the God of the Israelites. Or gods, as we read earlier, that's what they thought. And so Dagon is superior. And so the God of war, this is really pivotal what's going to happen here, that this God of war is, is showing by symbolism that he is more powerful than Jehovah God. And in the morning, Dagon has fallen flat on his face before the ark as if he is bowing to the ark. What I find ironic is what happened next. We already read it. What it says is they set up their God again. Think about that. Doesn't that strike you odd that you have to set up your God? What does that tell you about your God? Yeah, yeah. I mean, your God, your God is absolutely impotent. Your God is absolutely worthless. That you've got to set him up because he can't even stand for himself. And so the next morning, it says that he has fallen, and then he has, he's, you know, his head is severed, his arm is severed. The word that it mentions that they are cut off is the military word for execution. It shows up in the book of First Samuel later on. This is how they deal with some of the enemies. They cut off their heads, they cut off their hands. And it's the same word in the Hebrew that he was executed. It's a very unique term. And so very clearly the author wants the readers to understand Dagon was not more powerful than the God of the Ark of the Covenant. This is really important. In fact, he fell down and then he was executed. This God of war was executed in his own stronghold. That's really important. Okay, that's a lesson that the Jews are going to need to know. It's got to, this story's got to come back. And all these little details are so important for the Jews to rebuild their faith. Well, we read already that the people of Ashdod, they are, they are plagued. It isn't just the temple that's having problems. It said that Ashdod and the region round about, they are plagued. And again... Later on, you're going to read in the story that there was, they, they make little, little images of rats, mice, because apparently they are carrying this plague. Many people think that what this is is very similar to the black plague that, that struck Europe, where there would be boils, there would be um, large uh, areas, parts of the body, and in some of the areas, you know, like uh, under the arms, in the groin, that there would be all of a sudden this puffiness and this swelling, and there would be the discoloration. And we know the black plague was carried by uh, a lot of the rats and things of that sort that were going through the region carrying the disease. And so we don't have a specific of what this disease was, but but we get an impression that it was carried by, by the rodents and the people were just plagued. And if you read in this text, it says the region roundabout. So it's not just the temple area. There is affliction like there was in Egypt. So the people of Ashdod said, we got to get rid of it. The next paragraph, God records very carefully in detail that it's sent to the city of Gath. You know about Gath. That great giant Goliath later on is going to come from Gath. And so it's a city that has the giants. And they, we read about what happens in Gath in verse 8. They therefore of Ashdod sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines. That's the five kings. That's their system. Five capitals, five kings. They gather them together and they say, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of God of Israel be carried unto Gath. 
and they carried the ark of the Lord, God of Israel, about thither. Now if you look on the map, Gath is right about in the middle. They had taken it first to Ashdod on the coast. Now they're moving inland. Gath is the same city that is closer to Jewish borders. David runs to Gath. So maybe Gath, the people of Gath, have a better relationship with the Jews. They're more tolerant. I don't know the reason why they picked Gath second. Other than maybe they thought getting closer to Jewish territory, we're going to calm down the God of the Jews. And there could be Jews even residing in Gath. We don't know. We, there seems to be some record that Jews had lived with the Philistines in Gath, but that is still a little bit suspect. We, we read what happens when the ark ends up there. It was so, verse 9, that after they had carried it about, the hand of the Lord was against the city, the city of Gath, with very great destruction. And when he smote the men of the city, both small and great, they had, again, this this hemorrhoids, this swelling in their secret parts. And so they're afflicted in a very, very, very particular way that they're incapacitated because of the pain, because of the boils, because of, of the problem. And so the people of Gath respond that as we read on, therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. They didn't even wait for directions. They want to get rid of the hot potato of the ark. And so then we read in the next sentences that they go to the city of Ekron. Ekron is another one of the capital cities. And so the Philistines wanted out of Ashdod. They wanted out of Gath. But watch what the people of Ekron do. The Philistines. It says, it came to pass, verse 10, as the ark of God came to Ekron. It's not even there yet. What do the Ekronites do? It says the Ekronites cry out and say, they have brought about the ark of God of Israel to us to slay us and our people. The, the story is spreading. The news is it's being tweeted out. It's being talked about. Everybody knows what's happened in Ashdod. Everybody knows what's happened in Gath. That this ark of the covenant is causing difficulties for the Philistines who thought they had overpowered the Jews. But they're being humbled, not by the Jews, but by the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, God's discipline upon them. And so they pray. They say, don't even let it come to us. Verse 11. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the Ark of the God of Israel and let it go again to its own place, that it slay us not in our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city the hand of God was very heavy there. And so apparently the leaders put it there for a period of time, even though the people feared it, but they suffered greatly. There's a phrase that comes out in this text that yeah, you got to mark in, in your mind. The men that died not were smitten with these hemorrhoids. And the cry of the city went up to where? It went up to heaven. That is very similar to the story of Nineveh when Jonah comes and he preaches that they cried and they were heard in heaven. What do the people of Ekron, who do they turn to for relief? They're turning to God. They are being impacted and impressed that this God is more powerful than their gods. Okay, Dagon or whoever it may be. And so they got to get rid of it. We've got to get rid of this hot potato. And so they want the, these, what we just read is a seven-month period. 
We read in chapter 6, verse 1. This is over a period of seven months. They have determined we can't keep this here. It is dangerous to our health to keep the Ark of the Covenant. We've got to send it back. And so what they do is the leadership in chapter 6, the Ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. The Philistines, this is the five kings, they called for the priests and the diviners. They're not calling for Jewish priests. They're not calling for Jewish individuals. They're calling for their religious leaders, the priests and the diviners. Now keep in mind, this is very important. God had said in the book of Deuteronomy that the diviners was a forbidden group. These were the people who would communicate with spirits. That's the word diviners. They were the seancers. They were the, the ones who would talk to dead people. They were, they, were, they were these contact individuals doing that type of thing. They were supposed to be killed if somebody practiced that. These were called, in the book of Deuteronomy, diviners were called an abomination to the Lord. They were considered by God one of the lowliest and most, most corrupt of religious individuals. Keep that in mind when we read what they say. They go to the diviners, and the diviners and the priests who are of this pagan religious system, they tell them, here's what you need to do. When they ask verse 2, what shall we do to the ark of the Lord? Tell us wherewith we shall send it to his place. We've got to get it out of here. What do you, how do you advise us to do it? They said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, send it not empty, but in any wise return him. When you return it, put a trespass, a guilt offering, a sin offering. In their system, they had that. And so they say, make offerings. Then you shall be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. And they said, what shall, what shall be the trespass offering, which we shall return to him? They said, make. And they tell him to make these statues, make these golden images of the, of the sores that come. And by the way, religious systems, do they, do they sometimes make, we've we shown this to you. That even in countries like in Portugal where they have Fatima, where they, they take images of the handicap, in, images of the body part that's afflicted, and they burn it as if that's a prayer to say, heal this body part. Well, that's what these Philistines do. Make some images of these hemorrhoids, of these sores. And then also make some images of that which carries the swords, the golden rats, the mice, whatever you want to call them here, according to the number of the lords of Philistines. So five, five golden images of each of those. For one plague was on you all and on your lords. Wherefore you shall make images of your emeralds and images of your mice that mar the land, and you shall give glory unto the God of Israel. These are diviners saying this. Give glory to the God of Israel. Peradventure, he will lighten his hand from off you and from off your gods and from off your land. Verse 6 is interesting. Wherefore, and these, guys were not, these guys are immigrants. They were never a part of the national inhabitants when, the, when we have Israel's account of coming out of the Exodus, but they know about it. It says, Wherefore then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? And when he had wrought wonderfully among them, or did marvelous deeds among them, did they not let the people go and they departed? Now therefore make a new cart. Get rid of this thing. Get it out of here. Let the people go. In other words, let the ark go. Don't, don't be like Pharaoh was. And now therefore make a new cart, a brand new cart. Take two milk cows on which you has never come a yoke and tie the kind, the, the cattle, to the cart and bring their calves. Bring their calves home from them. So you got two mother cows. Take their calves away. Lock them up. Take these two cows that have never before been yoked. They've never been, been broken, so to speak. Attach them to the cart, and let's see what happens. 
You have a brand new cart. You got your images on there. And it says, verse 8, Take the ark of the Lord, lay it upon the cart, put jewels of gold, which you return for him as this guilt offering, in a coffer by the side thereof, and send it away, that it may go. And see, if it goes by the way of his own coast to Beth Shemesh, then he hath done us this great evil. We're going to test. Is this from Jehovah God? We're, we think it is. We're, we're fully confident, but let's confirm it. If these two cows that have never before been yoked work together and leave their calves and head for Beth Shemesh, then that's proof. This is from the God of Israel. All these problems. And we've done the right thing by getting rid of it. If by chance... Those two mother cows don't leave. They don't work together. They buck the yoke. Then, then he go, they go on and they say, but if not, then we shall know that it is not the hand of the God of Israel. That smote us. And it was just a coincidence that happened to us, just a plague that came through the area. And so the men did so. They took two milk cows, tied them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home. And they laid the ark of God upon the cart and the coffer, that is their offerings, with these golden mice and images of the emeralds. And the cattle took... Verse 12 is critical. Look at verse 12. And the kind took... What's your Bible read? The straight way. What's that mean to you? They went straight. They didn't turn. They headed straight to Beth Shemesh which was the test that the Philistines had. This is all of the God of Israel, if those cattle head straight that direction. And they, they did. They did. So here's what you got. All these things we've already mentioned that they're putting out there, and the cows are never yoked. They, without, without their calves, this is all a test. And the cows go, it's all of God. The cows don't go, it's not of Jehovah. And it ends up, they go. And they head a beeline towards Beth, Beth Shemesh, which is the nearest Jewish town. That's all what happened. That's all these details that's so important with the addition of what we read this morning. The Philistines are following at a distance. They're watching. When the people of Beth Shemesh see the Ark of the, 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 Ark of the Covenant come on that wagon over the hill, they are so excited. They, they are so thrilled. Well, when the Philistines see that that Ark did exactly, uh, you know, the cart goes exactly to Beth Shemesh, they go, it was a God. We got rid of it. We, you know, our hands are washed. We're, we're going home. And who's defeated now? It's them. It's them. And so then we know that the story. They knew it's of Jehovah. They're clear of it. Now, chapter 7 picks up. Chapter 7 picks up with the idea that Samuel is going to preach to the people and say, let's go out and let's beat the Philistines. So between these moments of getting beaten, chapters 5 and 6 contains information, contains something that rebuilt, re-energized, reinvigorated the Jews. That they could tell some lessons not to give up on God. Not, to, not that it was God's fault. Not that God wasn't able to do it. Something that they learned from the account of what happened to the Philistines. There were some things that, that had to be written down in all this detail so that their faith would be built up. And we've seen the detail. Now what lessons? What lessons stand out from that story that the Jews would grab onto and say, wait, wait this, this, this God of ours wasn't beaten. This God of ours hasn't forsaken us. What lessons were there? Let me give you a few of them. Number one is this. When we face difficulties and defeats, nothing of our God is diminished. This is a critical lesson that God is illustrating to them by what he does with the Ark of the Covenant and what he does with the plagues and all those things. He is illustrating that his power 
was not diminished. He was not subordinated in any way, shape, or form by Dagon. Dagon did not get the best of him, and he just needed some time to rest and to recover. That's not the point. The point is that God's power was remaining at all times. That God is still powerful, even though we might be beaten, even though we might dis- get discouraged, even though we may think that there's, there's a problem here, not with God. Not with God, not at all. Because as we said this morning, the problem is with the Jews. And God was illustrating, it's not me. It's not me. I still have the power. I could absolutely humble the Philistines anytime I choose to humble them. Because God is still powerful, even though his people aren't so powerful. God was still present and working, even though they said, we don't feel he's around here working. He's still working. He's still working. He's there. He hasn't, he hasn't deserted them. I will never leave thee and forsake thee, he says. And so they needed to be reassured that God is not vacant, that he hasn't abdicated his role of helping the Jews, that he was still involved in their lives. And he makes it very clear. He makes it very clear that, that even though they had done some things wrong, he was still actively involved in dealing with the enemies of, of the Israelites. He had to make this as an important lesson for the Jews of that day. This is the way most people thought, that gods were powerful only in the area where they were worshipped. If they step outside of their border, those gods, they couldn't do anything. So that's why you had a god of your territory, a god of Ono, or a god of Harrisburg, or a god of Lebanon, a god of Myerstown, a god of Palmyra, and that's where they had their power source. Well, what the Jews are learning is their god is powerful no matter where he is at. He could even be in the stronghold, in the very center of Dagon worship, and he is more powerful than Dagon. They needed to learn that so that they don't fear invading the the, the Philistine territory, that their God was powerful and amazing and awesome no matter where he is, no matter where they were, that God's power went everywhere. They had to learn this, that God is able to control as much as he chooses to control. As much or as little as he wants to control. He could control two mother cows and take control of them against their maternal instinct and guide them who have never before been under the yoke and make them to go carefully all the way where he wanted them to go. God was capable of controlling statues. God was able to control bodies and plagues and rats and every little... God is able to control nations, to bring down leaders, to destroy armies. They needed to learn this lesson that their God is powerful in the big things. He is powerful in the little things. There's a story that comes out of World War II. True story of a believer who's there in a U.S. military, got separated from his troops. And there he's in one of those islands in the Pacific that they are fighting with, with close combat with the Japanese. And this man got separated, and he decided that what he would need to do is get to the higher ground so he could survey the territory. And as he got to higher ground, he heard the Japanese were getting closer and closer. Some of their, some of their scouts were out there. And so he ran into an area that he saw within this jungle area, there was a series of caves. He ran into one of those caves. It wasn't real deep, but it was enough that he could get in the shadows. But he could hear the voices. You could hear the Japanese soldiers coming, and there he knew that it would be only a matter of time that when they would look into those caves, that they would see him. And he prays, God, please put up a wall in front of me. Protect me. And the only thing he sees there in the moonlight as he hears the voices coming, he sees a spider there 
a spider starting to form a web over his cave, and he's thinking, this is not what I prayed for. I prayed that God would put a brick wall, you know, a, a stone wall in front to protect me. And yet, that spider worked at this phenomenal speed, got the spider web all done, so that when the Japanese soldiers were going from one cave to another cave, they came up and they looked and they saw the spider web across the face of the cave, and what did they think? Nobody's there. Nobody could have gone in there, or that spider web went. God used the cobweb of the spider to protect that man. God can control the insect world. The Jews needed to learn this. They needed to be reminded of how powerful, how amazing their God was. Can I give you a second lesson? It's very similar to what I just said, but just to reiterate it. God always has more power than his people's enemies. The Jews needed to know this because they have been defeated in battle not once, but twice. And they needed to learn that their God was the most powerful, that he could humble those armies with disease with plagues, by using the animal kingdom. And so this was a very important lesson. There's a third lesson. Third lesson, when things go wrong for us, it is not due to a problem with God. They needed to know that. Why? Because remember what we talked about this morning. Their immediate mindset was when things went wrong, God, why did you do this to us? The problem was God. God didn't care. God wasn't here. God was on vacation. Something was wrong with the Lord and his attentiveness to our needs. And they are being told. They are being shown. They are being taught by the story that they will hear, by the account with all of the specific details that they will hear. That it's going to be recorded. It's going to be relayed to them and then recorded for future generations. They're going to know that, hey, when we struggle with weakness, when there's a problem that comes in our life, it's not a problem with God. It doesn't show a weakness when there's a physical calamity, when there's a financial calamity, when there's a social calamity. It's not a problem with God. God is still on the throne. That was a lesson they needed to learn. Number four, this was an important lesson. That God is able and often does use what we call bad experiences, illnesses, car accidents, breakdowns, health issues, financial problems. What we say are trials in life. God is often able to, often able to take bad experiences to exalt himself and teach others to trust him. I, I find it amazing. I've alluded to it, now bring it together. I'm amazed that the Philistines cry to heaven, that they turn and they realize Jehovah God is more important. We need you. I'm not saying it's the salvation moment, but it's similar to what the Ninevites did. They finally come to a point where they realize God is God. Can the Lord use bad situations to catch people's attention? Can he use natural disasters to try to get people's attention? Can God use warfare that afflicts people to break down a nation so that people start listening? Yeah, he can do that, and he does do that. He exalts himself through difficult moments. He's not weakened, he is heightened. In fact, I am so amazed by the historical story here that the diviners who are pagan uh, religionists, at the, at the height, they're abominable. They're saying, don't harden your heart against this deity. Even they recognize the potency of Jehovah. Even they say 
that he's there. And let's not, let's not you know, offend him any further. You know, so here you have the story that God's, God's exalting himself. The Jews are going to come to that point where they see God is so amazing. So amazing that they are going to end up exalting God through their trial. Does that ever happen to you and me? Do trials ever humble us, difficult moments, that all of a sudden by the end we're seeing how God, how great he is, how he uses what we think is totally bad and brings out greater glory to himself. We lost the ark. But in the end run, God, faith in God and God's glory is exalted even more. It's amazing that God is able to do this, that he is that potent, that powerful to be able to bring all bad things to bring glory to himself. What an amazing God who can orchestrate all those details. There's a fifth lesson that stands out. God takes special interest in protecting that which is clearly dedicated to him. God takes special interest in protecting what is clearly dedicated to him. Now, you know from the story what's what, what piece of furniture was dedicated to him. It's the Ark of the Covenant. Did he take special care? When the Jews didn't take care of it, did he take care of it? Yeah, he did. It's amazing how you, you can read account after account. One preacher was writing about how he says he was driving down this road that was frequent towards where he was headed for home, and he noticed that frequently in the afternoon time, that right around that one-ish o'clock, 12.30, one-ish o'clock when he was headed for home, there was a man by the side of the road that would be there in all types of weather. And he's, he's got a lengthy article that talks about when it was raining, when it was hot, and when it was in getting in the winter months, that this guy would always be there. And he never knew, why is that guy just standing there by the side of the road looking and just watching and not, you know, not taking a ride, but just standing there, you know, there at the point. And so one time, the preacher said the curiosity got so best of me, I parked the car down at the, the curve that was in this road. And I just parked on the inside of the curve enough that I could see the man, but he basically couldn't see me. And I watched, just trying to figure, why is he out there so often? And he said, then I saw the reason why. Across the field was the local school. And every day, his young girl, who only went like half day of school, would come running across that field. She would meet her daddy. Her daddy would escort her across this road because there was that curve right there. He took such a special interest that he was providing care for her in every type of weather. That's our God. Whether it's rainy or sunshine, that's our God who is committed to you to provide care. That's the way he cared for these individuals. We have that, that ark that he cared for. He's, he, the Jews are learning God cares for us. We thought he had deserted us, but no, he's caring for us. He's providing for us. He's protecting us. He's dealing with our enemies, not in our timetable, but he's operate, operating and doing his deal, his work in his timing. By the way, in our day and age, what is his specially dedicated instrument? The, what is his temple besides our body? First Corinthians says the church is the temple. Does God take a special interest in protecting the church? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Very, very much so. And so God, God is very caring. In fact, what did Jesus predict? He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against. What entity? I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God's care. You know, the bottom line is this. The Jews needed to learn this. And it's probably the same lesson we need to repeat. A lesson about how much God cares. 
how much he really cares about what we do, how we do it, making us to be more holy. He takes a, a, a real interest in our life. Some of you who are, who are sports, fiend, sports fiends and fans, you, you remember Ken Griffey Jr. He was a phenomenal player, played for a couple, few different teams. And right around the year 2000, they wanted to honor him as the player of the decade and give him that award. And he beat out all these different, different personalities that were you know, Hall of Fame type individuals. And Ken Griffey was going to get the People's Choice Award as being the athlete of the decade. He never showed up for the award ceremony. I mean, he's the only one in that 10-year period that's getting this award for the baseball, you know, for, the, for sports in general. He's the athlete of the decade. He didn't show up. You know why he didn't show up? He had something in his mind that was far more important. His little boy was playing his first minor league baseball game. And his boy was going to be in that game, and he had told his son he'd show up. Now, to many of us, it would be like, you can go to many, many other games, but he had made commitment to his son. And his commitment to his son was more important than this reward trophy that was a national trophy. God's commitment to you is us on that par. That it is more important that he keeps his word to us than all the glamours and the trophies that we could get out of this world. We have a God who is committed to us. Committed to growing us. Committed to chastening us. Committed to drawing us closer to him. Committed to caring for us. Committing to help us. If we walk close to him. Those were lessons that the Jews needed to learn at that moment so that they could proceed forward in chapter 7. An amazing account. It's not just a story. It is a life lesson account of God's gracious care and His holiness and His awesome power. A lesson that we ought to remember. That in God's mind, we're important to Him. Is he important to you? Father, I pray that you would help us not to lose faith, not to lose hope, not to lose our, our dedication, not to lose our holiness, but to look and to realize how great, how majestic you are, how powerful you are, how demanding you are of a godly lifestyle. Lord, when we fall, when we stumble, when we, when we go astray, bring us back like you did the Jews. Bring us back to a place of victory where we are humbled, where we realize that we need to trust you more, we need to be more dedicated to you. This week, work that work in our hearts. This week, deal with us in a more personal way, we pray in the name of Jesus.